0: All right, hello, Idiots on Parade, the Too Ugly for TV podcast, bonus podcast. Hello, my friend Barrett. Hey, how are you, sir? All is well here. Ladies and gentlemen, first time tuning in if you're bored and discovering new podcasts. Uh, My name is Nathan Timmel. I am a cracker American comedian in the Midwest. That is Barrett Antar Goodwin, an African-American musician in New York City. And the reason I tell you that is generally... We solve racism on this podcast. We've solved it over and over, and I mean, yet it really, keeps coming I back. Mean,
1: so, which is shocking, given how many times we've given people the solutions.
0: Yes, but not this week. This week, I figure we've solved pod, uh, podcasting. We've solved racism enough. I have, uh, I've shit. I want to bounce off you, my friend. Yes. And uh, quick to listeners that might be new, uh, we've known each other. 30 years, is it? Jesus goddamn Christ. Too it's long. Been so, a good couple years. So sometimes we speak in a shorthand, and we don't mean to lose you. It's just that we know each other so well that, you know, one of us can go, oh, that time with the green. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you might be going, green what? What the fuck? Um, yeah. But we know where we're. Anyway, so ethics. I want to I wanna talk ethics today because um, I'm not sure. I, I had a friend that posted a Facebook status, um, something that happened to him, something he did. And I want to tell you the status. I want to hear your opinion on what you would have done. I guess I'll tell you what he did, and then I can tell you my advice, and we can just discuss all of it. How does that sound? Sure. All right. So what happened is an age-old thing. It happens all the time. Uh, he discovered money. He was at a dispensary store, Potts Legal, where he lives, and he was going to go buy some pot. And if if you're unaware, listeners... Um, Pot is a cash business only in Colorado and other places where it's legal. You can't use credit cards. You can't use um, checks. You have to pay cash. So he's in the dispensary. There are three customers in there, he, him and two other people. And he finds a couple hundred dollars on the floor. And He picks it up and he walks straight to the counter and says, hey, I found this. And since there are only two other customers, the clerk says to the first person, like, hey, is this yours? And the guy says, no, it's not mine. I got my money. And says to the next person, hey, is this yours? And the other person goes, oh, yeah, yeah, money? That's mine. That's mine. And the clerk says, wait a second. Where did you lose it? And the guy pointed to a corner of the store where my friend did not find the money. Like, my friend found the money one place, and the guy pointed at a different place, and the clerk just gave him the money and he took off. He's like, thanks, and left without buying anything, just, you know, before he could get discovered is the way my friend read it. And then my friend felt guilty. He felt bad. He's like, well, shit, if I was just going to lose the money, why didn't I keep it? If someone else is going to steal it, why didn't I steal it? Why do I have to be? He was beating himself up for being for doing the noble and or correct thing. If that is noble and or correct, that could be an, that could be question number one. Do you just keep found money or do you try and return it? What would you do in that situation? Let's start there.
1: Well, honestly, what I would have done if I found a few hundred dollars sitting on the floor, I'd have put it in my pocket, and then if I heard somebody say, Holy shit, where'd my money go? I would have given I'd say, Hey, I just found a bunch of money over there, it's probably yours. That's what I would have done. Okay. You know, like I I, I don't know that I would have brought it up to the counter because in that situation, if, if somebody said, hey, I just found a few hundred dollars and I watched one person turn it down, that would have given me the time to realize that I could take it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know that I would have done it, but part of me would have been like, why not say it's mine? Right. Like there's a part of me, there's a, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, fuck it. It's found money and whatever. Who am I hurting? Right. But I don't think I would have done that. I think I would have said it's not mine, but I know there's a part of me that would want to say it's mine. You know? Sure. Well, next part,
0: part two is, like I said, mm -hmm. he's beating himself up and he felt really bad. Like, man, I'm always doing the right thing. I should have just kept the money. I could use a couple hundred dollars. Um,
1: I mean, that's that's a natural thought to have in that situation.
0: Right. Well, part two is then he realized, you know, much after the fact, like when you think you have a good comeback uh, or you're like, oh, I should have said this. He's standing there and, and he's in a pot dispensary, which means there is security up the ass, which means what the clerk should have done and what he should have done or could have done more on the clerk is gone. Huh. All right. Well, we have cameras everywhere. Let's see if we can see who dropped it instead of just turning it over to someone and that really beat my friend up he's like well since they didn't do that yeah the other guy literally just stole it conversely if he had picked it up and just walked away then someone you know 10 minutes later holy shit, where's my money go back and you search the tapes and they see him picking it up and walking away not that they call the cops or they could figure out who he is well it's
1: not illegal
0: Right. Well, money's, I'm just saying
1: money's a bearer bond. So like the minute it hits the floor, it's not yours anymore. It really is. Like legally, okay. well, then the not floor, even I legally think that we're just talking ethics, anymore, though. You know? Like I said, this is ethical. Right.
0: Um, so here's what I told him. I said, you're beating yourself up because you wish you had done one thing, but you felt you had done the noble thing uh, because you felt it was right to turn the money in. The only way you don't beat yourself up is to do what you want to do and be okay with that. And everybody else that was commenting on his Facebook thing was saying, you did the right thing because karma. Karma's going to come back and get that guy karma, karma, karma. And I, I read those and I said, I don't believe in karma. I, I didn't used to, and now I really don't. And let me give you two examples. And I apologize for using politics, but it's just the easiest thing to do. You have Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Both men became president of the United States of America, and both men are pretty much polar opposites of one another. Barack Obama probably, I would suspect, very strongly would have turned the money in because he would just say, this is not my money. Someone could need it more. It's, it's accidentally found. Someone you know, could be coming back for it. Donald Trump would have put it in his pocket without a second thought. Fuck you, my money, I found it. And neither person has been karmically harmed. You know, both men became president. They took two different paths. One appealed to our better nature and one appealed to the worst of us. And it succeeded for both of them. That's why I don't believe in karma. Not that's the only reason, but I those are good examples of why karma is not real because one man isn't punished and kept from office and the other man isn't rewarded with the... Both men became president using completely opposite I mean, paths and yeah. personalities.
1: But... Um, Go ahead. Oh, no, finish it, though. No, that was oh. it.
0: Just And so, yeah, whatever you can live with as a person is going to be okay. It's how you feel internally. If you want to pick the money up and go, cool, my lucky day, that's on you. If you pick the money up and go, oh, man, I should have turned it in. Oh, I kept this guy's money. What if someone oh. really needed it? What if that's also on you. Whatever you oh. do that you're okay with, That's that's life life is random unpredictable and stupid
1: yeah but here's the thing right if i was by myself there's a high likelihood that i would have turned the money in or at least looked around to see if anybody was missing their money i don't know i see i don't believe i believe people would lie and because here's the thing right if i was like honestly right if i was the second person they asked i would have patted my pockets reached in and went holy shit, that is my money thanks right because I think fast enough to do shady shit like that, right? So I believe that other people think that way too. So I would not have wanted to turn it in only because my thought is that people are dishonest. And somebody would do exactly what that guy did and run off with it. And if if that's what's going to happen, then I might as well be the one to keep it, right? Unless I heard somebody say they were missing their money, in which case I would do that. And if I saw cameras, I might then say, hey... Can you just run and see this? And I would, you know, I might explain the situation to someone, but I wouldn't hand it to the clerk. I'd keep it in my pocket and say, listen, if somebody calls about it, here's the number and show me the tape. Right. Literally, that, I don't know that I would have done that. Either, that right? is exactly
0: what I was going to say, though. Right. That is the third option. I did right. that once as a kid. I mean, I learned my lesson. Uh, I can't remember my I found fifty dollars. I found it in this mm-hmm. little change purse and uh, just. You know, tiny, like a, a change purse, not a purse purse, no identification, no license, no wall no, just $50. In. And so I took it home and showed my mom. I was under 10 years old. I was a kid. And my mom said, all right, we're going to call the police. And the police said, bring it in. And, uh, you know, if someone collects it, then, you know, great. And if no one collects it, we'll call you. And my mom said, mm, I'm not stupid. We'll hold on to it. And you call us if someone calls and says they lost a little tiny red change purse with $50. I think three, four months later, my mom said, okay, no one's called, so we're going to go spend it now, or you can spend it. And I bought my very first record album, which was Kiss Double Platinum, uh, because I've always liked to waste money. (laughs) (laughs) Because
1: I've never been good with money. It started at a young age.
0: (laughs) Um, But either way, that, like you just, so what you were saying is the reasonable outcome, which is, hey, I found two hundred dollars on the floor. So here's my number. If someone calls and said they lost two hundred dollars, I want to see the tape and I'll give it to them. You know. But here's the
1: thing: if I, if it was me and three of my friends, and I found two hundred dollars, I would keep it and I'd give each one of them fifty, and we'd all walk out of the store. And I wouldn't think there was anything wrong with that. Right? Because I have a rule: like if you're hanging out with people and you find money, it's everybody's money right? Because anybody could have found it. So at that point, if it's me and four friends, it's everybody's money, not just one person's. It's 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 literally found money. Literally, right. And so you you either buy a lottery ticket with it. If it's like five bucks, you buy a lottery ticket and make a deal that if if it wins, you all split it, right? Do something silly like that. But if I found like 500 bucks and it was me and three or four of my friends, I'd be like, holy shit, guys, look, and I give everybody 100 bucks. You know, like, that's But And I wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me to turn it in because I would think, oh, here's an opportunity for me to be generous, which when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Right. But being generous is somebody else's misfortune. But that's what I would ultimately do.
0: I mean, and I also do think there is a small difference between. Maybe a large difference, I don't know, between finding a wallet full of money and finding cash yeah. you find yeah, a wallet I you've mean, got an i d you you give it back because it's theirs, yeah,
1: oh, I mean, I found that happened in New York. I found this guy's wallet and it had like eighty bucks in it and a bunch of credit cards and stuff and i and it was right by the bitter end, and so I had a gig the next day I told him to meet me there. And he's like, "Oh, here you go." And I handed him. Like, I suppose the cash was missing. Huh? And I said, "No, it's still there." And I gave it to him. And he said, "Oh," I was like, "Well, thanks," and walked off. And I was like, "Dude, what? Do I, I don't need your eighty dollars. Like, whatever."
0: Like, yeah, you know, I'd like, like your eighty dollars, like, but I, I don't I want need your eighty
1: dollars. I want it. Like, believe me, if it didn't have your name on it, I'd have fucking took it. But like, I have your wallets here, your phone numbers here, like you know, like all your business cards. Like it was, it took me like I just called him up the next day. And was like, hey, I think I found your wallet. You know, he <laughs> was like, okay. But yeah, I was like, it wasn't even an issue. Of course, I gave him his cash back. Yeah, right? I, so the- you're right. Like in a wallet situation, it doesn't even occur to me to keep the person's cash, because it's theirs. You know, they like, is if somebody took my cash? I'd be pissed off, even if they gave me my wallet back. I'd be pissed. But if they didn't take the cash, I might give them forty bucks. Like if I had eighty dollars in there, I might give them forty bucks just for give being cool. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like just because it's like they did the cool, they did the right thing, and I think people should be rewarded when they do the right thing. So I, I you know, in that sense, you know what I mean. But now the question is this: If I found a a wallet with Ten thousand dollars in it, or fifteen thousand dollars, and the person's license looked like they were a douchebag. Would I still be honorable? Like, there's probably a price at which I like would a guy start with a really... bunch of
0: face tattoos or something like that. Like <laughs> well, I think that guy was cool. Or so or I, I
1: do Well, that that's right. Probably like if I found the 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 briefcase of a white supremacist. And it had ten thousand bucks in it. Would I keep it? You know, and the answer is probably yes. But if I found the the briefcase of a of a well, I'd say priest, but they're equally do uh,
0: uh, <laughs> No, no, the difference between right. <laughs> you know what I'm you're making dying. me think of? <laughs> they did studies. They did a hidden camera study of uh, they they put a uh chick on the side of the road not in the middle of nowhere like in a safe area but they they put a woman in a parking lot maybe yeah I think it was a parking lot and uh they put a hot woman in a parking lot and she said oh my goodness i locked myself out of my car and all these guys would come and help like oh my god how can we help you and then they put uh maybe it was the same woman in a fat suit and uh i locked my keys out of my car like sucks to be you i mean it was it's it's sort of a kissing cousin to what you're saying <laughs> Not, not as right. a, a, like a well, maybe a distant cousin, because there's a difference between a white supremacist and fat shaming someone. But well, literally, I mean, people were all about like, oh, this hot chick lost yeah, her keys. It, it, it I'm on depends it.
1: Depends on right. It depends on how the person fits into your worldview, right? Yes. When I say white supremacist, I don't mean to to bash the white supremacists you know what i mean they they're, they're they do their part to save the country right that's what they're trying to do they be-
0: <laughs> but in their minds they are right
1: right like they really believe that what they're doing is the right thing you know but uh, i mean quick if quick, was, quick, let's, quick, let's quick, say- quick 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 side
0: note absolute side i watched dead bang for the first time in probably 20 years a couple nights ago oh such a gloriously delightfully bad movie I don't even
1: know which movie this is. Oh, this it's movie. Don Johnson
0: hunt, hunting down a the a team of white supremacists. It was oh, actually okay. very groundbreaking because uh, nobody was <laughs> talking about white supremacy really, and in the movie he uncovers what originally looks to be like a a murder and is a whole underground movement of white supremacy. So it it oh. you know, cheesy bad 1989 movie with Don Johnson, but I, it's it's great. I highly recommend it in a in a cheesy bad way.
1: All right, I'll look into this. Fascinating. I like I like shitty old movies. They make me they they make me smile.
0: Oh, it's quintessentially eighties. Uh, so much yeah. unnecessary shit that happens where you're like, this uh, this is completely unnecessary yeah. to the story, but all they the throw it anyway because it was the eighties. Oh, you know, the, the, the soundtrack synth, the synth is so bass,
1: yes. the extra reverb all over the drums.
0: <laughs> How that movie didn't solve racism, I will never know.
1: Right again. People been Don Johnson been saying it since eighty nine. Shit. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. So but, anyway, what, you, uh, you were—we well, got sidetracked uh, by white supremacy and a, well, and a satchel of money. Well,
1: well what I mean is, like, it—it would it, it, we we bash the white supremacists, you know what I mean? Because they're well, white supremacists, right? But to anybody that like, doesn't realize that's an I Eddie know, Murphy joke, I know it's my it, favorite it, 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 Eddie Murphy I joke know. of all time. <laughs> I know. You know, I kid the
0: homosexuals <laughs> because they are homosexual and like. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: such a. So wrong but so funny.
0: <laughs> I kid them because they exist is just
1: uh. well it's like the Chappelle thing where he says, you know you got to admit it's kind of a funny dilemma. If it's not happening to me it's actually kind of funny that you're trapped in the body of another person like there's a comedic element to being born a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body. There is a comedic element to that, right? And
0: It's bizarre, uh, and you can find humor right. in anything that's bizarre. But here's bizarre. the thing. I'm and bizarre doesn't mean you, wrong or natural or not I'll, Christian. It just I'll, means I'll, it's different. But here's the thing.
1: I'll bet you the first transgender person with a legitimately good sense of humor who can see the comedy aspect of that is going to be great. Oh,
0: They're like out the there. I worked with a woman that was born biological male, uh, several months ago in Duluth, Minnesota. Her name is Danielle, and she was hilarious. And the thing was, right. she was 56 years old, which means right. she was old enough to have a sense of humor about life because I also yeah. worked with a trans comedian that was well, I'm either trans at the time or just gay, I don't remember. But the long and the short of it was uh, in... I I cannot remember the correct pronouns if it, pronoun if it was man male he she I I'm, so I'm not trying to be belittling here um I'm just going to use he because I I either way he was very young in his 20s and didn't have a sense of humor about anything was was more of the right. mm, generation whereas this this woman Danielle just talked about being a man and transitioning to a woman in a very respectful but humorous way and it was just fantastic, and we got along great, and you know nobody was making fun of her for her journey or her experience, and she wasn't either, but she was doing what you said, pointing out this is a weird situation. I was in the wrong body for most of my life, and in my late forties, early fifties, I transitioned it it you know to to you get to a certain age and either you do see life is absurd and you go with it or you think you discover life is absurd and it makes you bitter it's your choice yeah
1: yeah it really because the absurdity of it is is remarkably evident right (laughs) like like you can look all around you and go oh this is absurd right and there's definitely things to be angry at i believe there's plenty of things that people have every right to be angry at i do know i know a trans woman a born biologically male and then got married, had a few children, and then, you know, but it always had those kind of feelings. And then one day, you know, went, got surgery, did the whole thing, you know, and is now a woman, right? And I knew before and after Right, because uh, she's a musician. So I knew her as a guitar player back when she was he. When you know, and now I know her as a woman who's a guitar player and a songwriter. And her sense of humor about it is is actually one of the most endearing things about it. You know, like being able to look back at the years of trying to live what was a lie, but earnestly, really trying. You know, like. Being able to look back at your life and go, "Wow, I was really trying to fill something that society told me I was supposed to be," and it took me a long time to get to this place where I was comfortable being who I am. And I'm like, you know, being able to look back at that with humor and not resentment—that's an ama- That's liberating. Like I don't, you know what I mean? It's not even like, oh, those are, you know whatever that's what the trans community needs they need to learn how to look at themselves with with humor it's not necessarily that it's just that when i look at her she seems liberated because she can look back at it without
0: resentment
1: you know and not necessarily with bitterness
0: and this ties directly. And it'd probably what be very said. easy to be bitter. I mean, I can imagine. Oh, remarkably. Yeah, it's not remarkably. a judgment to say that because you're going through an incredible thing. And and I'm thinking sideways here. Are you familiar with the comedian Brad Williams? No, tell me about this person. He's a little person, and he does a lot okay. of little people jokes. But when you listen to him talk, they're not at. They're not. Um, he's embracing who he is. He's not mocking himself. He's not. He he's the butt of his own jokes, but in a I guess, empowering way is the way to put it. And when you're around him or not that I'm around him, but when other people are around, when you listen to other people make little people jokes with him, he goes with it because it's, it's not like, uh, how do I put it? They're not at his expense. Nobody mocks him for what he is for his existence it's just little stupid shit that you can either embrace and laugh at or be angry with and he is and he there was there was a child in australia he he went viral a little while ago who was a little person who is a little person and was getting bullied at school for it and brad williams raised a ton of money for an anti-bullying campaign for the kids so it's not like brad williams is like ah come on kid you're a little person deal with it laugh it off like i do he's very aware he's very involved with with what could be called social justice, but he also has a sense of humor about life. That's why he's a comedian. So it's it's very interesting the paths people take where everything yeah. is uh serious and you can't, you know, joke about anything, or as long as there's no ill intent and you are not attacking or trying to harm, you can find humor in anything. It's it's interesting. Yeah, both paths.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And this ties into what you were saying earlier about the whole karma thing if you take Barack Obama and um, Donald Trump. Now, I would use two different people because they're both politicians, and I love Obama all day every day, but he's still a politician, right? So... I, I, you know, like I, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm black. So I have a natural distrust of German shepherds and politicians. I I thought I I was the black one in this podcast. Right. (laughs) Right? So, um, no, but, but, but to what you were saying, they were just the
0: two easiest ones I thought of. I know. I know. And, and, And
1: they, and they, and the, but to me, like at the end of the day, they are very similar in a certain way because they both were highly malleable chameleons who made a lot of promises to a lot of people by being Barack even said what he was really good at is was giving everybody hope like being able to be everybody's president right like and not actually put his foot firmly in one camp or another. That was one of the things he said was one of his strengths. You know what I mean? And Trump does the same thing and Trump what Trump represents to the people. I disagree. He I think Trump
0: plants his flag very squarely where he wants it. <laughs> I
1: think it. he I think he does. What I mean is that when he got in, when Trump when Trump what he says and what he does are two different
0: things, right? That's true. And I will but, disagree with you. I you don't know, think Trump's a politician. I think that's why he got elected I don't think he is either yeah, he's I don't not. think he's a
1: politician at all. But but what but I should I shouldn't say politicians. I say I should say politics, which is more that's a more accurate statement. But I think that that, you know, what Trump represents to his people is what Barack Obama represented to his people. I would agree with that. Like like, you know, but but that regardless of that. Right. What what, I get your point. Right. But and I do. I I would would like to
0: talk about Trump when when you're finished here, because I have been admiring the guy more and more. In, in a bizarre way, which we can get into in a second.
1: All right. I think what I would say is if we're using the idea of people who live a good life versus people who live a bad life, right, and what happens, I would argue that regardless of what it looks like, and we can use Donald Trump as an example, I suppose, right, but I don't really mean to single him out. He's just the example. The man has had how many wives and how many children from how many people How many failed businesses? How many successful businesses? How many people hate him? How many people love him? And does he seem like a happy, secure, self-assured person to you? Or does he seem like a guy who has demons in his head that keep him up at nights trying to beat imaginary ghosts that don't exist and all kinds of other shit? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you really think that that man is happy? No, I don't think he's happy. So
0: do you think that's karma or do you think that's just Uh, who he is as a person? I I just think
1: that... I think that hell is hell exists in your mind. And there I agree are with that. People who look back at their past and it it's a shackle, and there's people who look back at their past and it's a springboard, right? And it's the same exact past, you know. So. Who you know what I mean? Like, how many how many stories have you heard of people who had the most horrific childhoods that that really took that and turned it into something incredible and lucrative and life saving and healing for them and saving for other people well, that's, and, and beneficial? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let so me interrupt many you. Who've done that, you know.
0: And, and I apologize for interrupting, but let me. Nikki mm-hmm. Six is a shining example of that. Of, I I again I don't know how you call it karma, but. You talk about a guy that had the shittiest childhood. His dad left. His mom was a piece of shit. He had, you know, she had yeah. two boyfriends, and and he turned it into Motley Crue, a multi multi millionaire. You know, on stage, twenty thousand people in an arena. Nikki Motley Crue, and yet he killed himself on heroin because he was so unhappy being rich and popular and successful, and tore through two marriages with. Fucking Playboy bunnies, the two hottest fucking women in the world, and you know he didn't. And it still didn't fill that hole in his. Nothing filled that hole. Yeah, hell was in his head. Well, I
1: mean, dude, I'll I'll give you a great example, right? So you know, somewhere in the early '80s, there's this up-and-coming metal band that right before they're going into the studio to record their album, dude. I've read his book and I fucking hate him. Right, They fire their lead guitar player and they give old Dave Mustaine a ticket right back to California. Go, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And they call in old Kirk Hammett, right? And, and while Mustaine is on his way back, he's seething and he's planning about how he's going to start this new band with a better group of musicians and better this and better that. And he puts together Megadeth. Right. Out of the ashes of his career, he puts together Megadeth, which by all accounts and purposes, it was like Metallica, Slayer and Megadeth and Anthrax.
0: Anthrax. They're right? called the big four. Right.
1: Right. That's, he, that's what it was. And Megadeth, for all, man, they Can I play. point
0: out it's the black guy talking about white heavy metal right?
1: for a moment? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the black guy could also talk about Marvin Gaye and I know. Jackson Five and John Coltrane. But but not really, like, but I mean, they really could play, and it, 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 that is kind of comical, breaking stereotypes. That's what we do, folks.
0: But right now, now like, can I did, have you? I don't know if we've talked about this or did you read Dave Mustaine's book? No, nah. it's it's horrible because. Um, he never learns a fucking thing. He gets fired from Metallica, and he is still, yeah. to this day, from what I know, full of resentment toward it. Oh, yeah. Um, he and...
1: sold millions of records, sold out concerts, had an amazing career, but because his buddies Metallica did better, he could never actually see. Like, his what would have been heaven for anybody else was hell for him.
0: Yeah. And that's That's insanity. why you brought it full circle. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. So the what I was going to say, and this goes to your point of a shackle or a springboard. uh, So Mustaine always points his fingers at Metallica, always throughout the entire book, fuck Metallica. He never really comes to peace with it. Maybe he does at the end, but only because he finds Jesus in that, not in a positive, enlightening, empowering way, but in that drug addict way, which is he was addicted to drugs. Now he's addicted to Jesus. And I, I do believe there's a difference between, finding a spiritual uh, power that you embrace and teaches you love and one that is just your new alcoholism. And I believe he found it in the latter way, the alcoholism. Now, the reason I bring this up is, um, I probably told you this Duff McGegan, the bass player for guns and roses wrote a book and it is fantastic. And part of the reason it is fantastic is, um, he's a grown ass man. I'll just give you one example, just one. And that's all you really need. If you don't remember, um, I don't remember what concert. It could have been St. Louis, but Axel Rose hit the rest of the band with a contract. He said, I'm not going on stage. There are 20,000 people in the room. He's like, unless you sign this contract turning over the name Guns N' Roses to me, I'm not going to go sing. And it's very, you know, Slash signed it, Duff signed yeah. it, everybody in the band signed it. So Axel owned the name Guns N' Roses. When he's writing about that, Duff could have been the most bitter, angry fuck Axel for putting me in that position. How dare he act like a child? He said, you know what? I don't think it was fair, but I was drunk all the time. I was high. I was probably drunk when I signed it. I signed the contract. That's on me. Yeah, Axel maybe shouldn't have done it, but you know what? I'm a grown man. I signed away the rights to Guns N' Roses. What are you going to do? It is the most, I I, I don't want to say liberating, but... He, he lives with responsibility for his own actions. He could have done the same thing Mustaine did and pointed fi- pointed fingers and blamed Axel for everything, but he didn't. He owned up and took responsibility for signing the contract and, you know, throwing away the rights. And it was just an incredible moment in the book. And the whole book is written that way. He's a very interesting person. Yeah. So his life... And when he's talking about... This was before Guns N' Roses reunited, and he's talking about being in uh, not just the band he was in with Slash, with the guy that's dead from heroin. I can't think of what band that was. Um, Velvet Revolver. Velvet Revolver. But he's <coughs> talking about a different yeah. project where he's like, "Yeah, I'm just on tour with my little band, and you know, there's li-. and he's not saying I'm playing this club where Axel's playing the arena. He's just like, he's just ex- very happy with being a musician and playing these little clubs in his own Duff McGegan band it's yeah. it's really accepting and that was his heaven. It, everything was a springboard to him. What did I learn from this lesson moving on in life? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And <clears throat> and I think that if you if you legitimately love playing music what Axel did and I don't know his motivation. I've never met the guy whatever, but that just seems to me like a real dickhead move. Like, holy shit. Like how did he think that he was going to do that and then still keep good working relationships with the other three or four members of the team. You know what I mean? Like how could you think that would be a reasonable way to keep – to get everybody excited to work and do the job? Well, he was already on that path. uh, well, do you want like to hear, you hear a little more because i
0: I find this yeah. fascinating okay i mean that, that that's
1: just so that's like I can't imagine like to me, I always want to be in bands where everything's split four ways really <laughs> like to me, yeah. that's the way you solve all the problems you just you have a band of four people what however many people you have, that's how you split everything just split it well, up. why you has who does YouTube the been the
0: biggest band I mean? and stayed together without a rotating series of members for their entire right. career?
1: right, exactly.
0: Everybody, and even the band, even the band has said "Eh, Bono and Edge put in a little more of the work, but they still forever split it up equally until a few years ago where they did it on a sliding scale. They said, "Okay, it's not going to be cut four ways right now. I mean, touring will, but publishing royalties. It's bring it to the table. We're not going to automatically cut you out and say Edge wrote this song, but in the studio, you got to bring something to the table. And so, but anyway, back to Guns N' Roses. This is, I would love, I, I should write the goddamn book, but I'm too stupid and not an expert. I would love for someone to write this book or get this out there. This is my thought. Um, I'll ask your opinion quickly. I personally think um, that Appetite for Destruction is pretty much a fantastic album start to finish, but I also hate, with a passion, Both Use Your Illusion albums. I think they're just crap. And when I read Duff's book and Slash's book, they both say the same thing. And I I remember reading going, holy shit, that's why, right there. When they were a band, they went on tour, just this little club tour, and they're riding back in a van. And they're driving, I think, down the the 405 or the 5 in California, and they, they drive over a hilltop and see the valley of los angeles spread out before in front of them and they just start singing in the van hey take me back to the paradise city and hey where the grass is green and they, they write a song same thing with sweet child of mine he, they talk about being in the studio fucking around and coming up with song. the the where do we go now in sweet child of mine was literally them in the studio going okay we got most of the song where do we go now where do we go and they just started playing it <laughs> when it got to use your illusion it was completely organic That's Mm -hmm. organic, all of them. When they got to Use Your Illusion, they were such a big band, and Axel was already inside his head. Neither Slash nor Duff say this is the reason the songs suck, because they're not going to insult their own art. Neither of them even really said, I think the quality fell off. I personally think the quality fell off. But they talk about how they would go to the studio, say from noon to midnight... And then Axel would come in from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. and then he would write notes and give it to them and then they would come in the next day, see the notes and change. Nothing was organic. They were not playing together as a band. And when I read that, I'm like, that's why every song on those albums and even November Rain, even the ones people like, I still find nothing in. And when I read that, I'm like, that's why none of those songs were organic. They didn't come up with them as a band or one person just didn't write. It was committee and music is not done by committee. It it was just mind blowing to read that.
1: There's a lot of questionable lyrical choices on that stuff and a lot of stuff that people should have objected to. I remember some there's like some homophobic shit and some racist shit. Oh, that's on the EP Patience. Uh, well, not yeah. patience. That's that's a uh,
0: spaghetti incident. Yeah.
1: And and I and I remember like people asked Slash because Slash is half black. They're like, Did you you know, what did you he goes, well, you know, I've agreed not to get involved with Axel's writing process or something. It's just like, well that was right, actually
0: dude. those songs like Patience was actually good because those were leftover songs. Yeah, those were leftovers. That was, that was the song. EP between appetite and user illusion. So they still had those last couple yeah. songs in the song you're thinking of is one in a million which i don't even remember yeah. but um, uh
1: yeah i mean i just yeah i remember like just hearing that and thinking like wow that's a weird thing to be in a band with somebody who thinks like that and you are working with them closely that can't be that's got to be weird and maybe it's not maybe you know it's just maybe it's nothing who knows well and i'll like, give you two I, more examples i'll go back weird.
0: to one you 2 where uh everyone says Bono's an egomaniac and he had a song called magnificent where one of the lines was i was born to sing for you and it came out and everyone's like oh you were born to sing for me you were and he's like well edge wrote that line but whatever you know like edge was writing lyrics for Bono conversely um my favorite uh the police sting absolutely refused to sing (laughs) uh andy summers or um uh, Stuart Copeland songs, which is how you ended up with Miss Gredenko and Mother on the biggest album of all time. yeah. <laughs> because it's like he's like, no, I, I get that you guys want some publishing money, so you, you're gonna get your songs on there, but fuck you, I'm not singing them. <laughs> it's like So again, that goes back to the what, how, where this all started with success. and I don't know if you want to call it karma or just different personalities. Sting can say it's all about me and my songs and still be sting and yet you too can be okay we're a band there are four of us it's collaboration and they're still you too and then there's kiss kiss can be all right we've got paul and gene who are going to be the biggest biggest most controlling dicks possible but they're just going to control it all the way through even after peter and ace get kicked out or quit or come back and get kicked out again like they're just you know we're barreling forward by and they still play Cold Gin Live, which is an ace Freely song and one of the best kiss songs. There are no rules. It doesn't matter how you do yeah. things, ethically, I, morally, yeah. corrupt, you will be successful if you get well, lucky.
1: It's funny because this is that's I, I I definitely think luck plays a part in it, but I think also I think it's a handful of factors, right? I think luck is a part of it. But I also think that Talent and skill and hard work and all these other things somehow increase the surface area of you. Absolutely. So that, so that luck has more chances to hit you. Absolutely. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like well, you know, we've, the, the, you know, but I've I talked about that, this.
0: I apologize. I keep interrupting you, but yeah. my brain is on fire right now. We've, uh, Jack Nicholson, luck opens the door, talent keeps it open yeah whereas jack nicholson was a nobody actor and the the, the line is uh someone wanted to fire him from a, for a picture and the producer said the kid stays in the picture and robert evans wrote his book saying he liked that line like i don't want to be an actor anymore i want to be the power guy that says the. C-. so anyway nicholson got his lucky break but being talented kept him jack nicholson for several decades yeah yeah
1: yeah, I think that I think the problem that most of us have is that when things happen to us that are luck, we think that somehow we got it because of because we're special. Right. Like like when like I remember when I was younger and good things would happen to me, I'd be like, oh, OK, cool. My work is done. I've arrived. And it's like, no, the work that I did is what got me in the door. I keep doing the work. I actually double the work now. Do you know what I mean? Like that was I, the actual response is double the work. And instead I cut it in half. I know I exactly like, what you mean. Oh, and right. I'm trying not to
0: interrupt uh, you uh, again. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, switching gears, the NFL or even the mm-hmm. NBA, but the NFL is, is my favorite. So I stick with that. There are so many people that get washed out of the NFL. Matt Leinart comes to mind. Uh, well, they're bigger bust than him, uh, Leif, uh But. They can be the best college player in the world. They can win the Heisman. You can be an elite college football player. And when you get to the NFL, you have to turn it up so much. You have to double down on your work because there are a thousand college teams. So you can make a college football team. There are 32 NFL teams, which means the funnel of all the people that go to the wayside, the, the, the pyramid, if you want to reverse the funnel, you know, a lot of shit is getting thrown to the wayside and you talk about guys that get drafted in the first second third or fourth round any round well they, they did a documentary called um the brady six about six quarterbacks that were drafted ahead of tom brady yeah. and tom brady is the one that worked his ass off and when he got his lucky break when bledsoe went down he took his opportunity and he shone he shone he made it shine he worked yeah, you have to double down. When you get your lucky break, that's when you start working.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that that's generally what what it seems like life does. Life puts you in a situation where if you're willing to step your game up, you'll see. Like, every time that I have stepped up to the challenge rather than stepped in and thought, like, let my ego tell me that it was somehow my fate to get this thing or whatever bullshit story I told myself at the time. When I really would just double down on the work part, it always worked out significantly better than I could have ever even imagined. That's the funny part, right? Is that I can look, if I really take a, a careful examination of my life, I see that where I actually put in the work, the results so far outweigh the effort. When when it came time for payday, the 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 interest on the work somehow. Net, it, net so much money, you know what I mean? Or not money, but opportunity, money, whatever it was, happiness, whatever opportunities it was. It wasn't always money, but, you know, it was always significantly more than than the amount of work I put in, even though I felt at the time that I was working a crazy amount for very little. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's like somebody said, um, your bank account is a lagging um a lagging indicator picture uh, uh, yeah, a lagging indicator of your money habits and i was like ouch <laughs> you know <laughs> but like you know but but the, but that's true about life in general right like your life is a lagging measure of all of your habits and by the same token right that the, that would apply to the good things too it's just, right, like if you have a lot of money in your bank account and you earned it, like it wasn't handed to you, or even if you was, you, if you managed to hold on to it and grow it, whatever, you know, like that, that's an example of it. And I would say the same thing is true with the level of success also, right? Like not counting the luck part, there's the the skill and talent part. And however hard you work at that, your career is kind of a lagging measure of that to a certain degree, I think, you know which is interesting i don't like that either you know (laughs) but but i I but i do believe it's true you know
0: i can see that i the thing that you know about that listeners don't that i'll i'll share right now is uh um i saw a rough cut i filmed a professional comedy special for a a a place called dry bar and uh it's for mormons it's called dry bar because you know bars are known for alcohol and they're mormon so no liquor uh kind of clever actually i like it and uh i i prepared my ass off for it because it said you have to be squeaky 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 clean and i was nervous and i'm like all right this is this is my chance to get a professional video of me i can't just go up and fuck around and slack off and treat it like an open mic so i i wrote down all the bits i wanted to practice or which you know what order they would flow in and I saw a rough cut of that thing last week for the first time, they filmed it in November and we are recording in May and I finally saw the rough cut. They asked me a couple of questions and holy shit, I it looks better than I even remember. I remember being nervous or inside my head and you know, hearing a laughter and going, okay, good, they're laughing, this is good, this is good. But when you see it, you don't really see any of that in my face because preparation, like whatever was going on in my head, I held it together for the camera And I'm not saying this is my big break, but I'm just saying that the reward of seeing that video and knowing the effort I put in to get to that stage, it 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 looked better than me just, you know, like, I'm doing this thing Friday. Fuck it. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah.
1: Now, what if you took that same level of preparation and prepared for every show like that?
0: I kind of do, but I also have the problem of uh, I see too many people do that where then I introduce new bits during shows, so mm-hmm. I can still prepare and say, all right, we're going to do three classic jokes and then a new joke. And I kind of do that. So, but mm-hmm. you can't have a 100% show. I mean, I would do it if I was having another audition, then I would prepare, I mean, for that audition. But every gig itself is how do I bring new untested material into the fold? Yeah. And that is raw but it raw is what makes it exciting and keeps me on my toes yeah, because absolutely. I've seen professional comics. I'm not going to name them, but they made it on TV and they take fucking notes on stage and it's yeah. just, they're just like, oh, what happened to me at the airport? So, and, and I don't find them funny. I find and I found them actually very boring. Whereas yeah. you hear about Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle or anyone, Bill Burr, who take their new ideas and go to the club and I've I heard this about Richard Pryor recently. Someone was talking, I don't remember who it was, but someone was talking about how they would go to the club and like, wow, that wasn't funny. But after it was over, he had someone in the audience taking notes and he and Richard would sit down and talk and then Richard would be at the club the next night doing the same bit, but he would have changed two sentences or put something at the end. And it's like, yeah, that's, so yeah, you can prepare I for think, You have to prepare for your specials, I mean, he, but yeah. every show is fluid.
1: Again, you know, here's the the black guy talking about music. So Leonard Skinner <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. So Leonard Skinner is like they you know, regardless. I don't actually think their politics are that crazy. I really don't. I think they got rid of the Confederate flag at some point because they didn't like the ties to the KKK and racism and stuff. Actually, do you, you have know. you
0: read about Leonard Skinner?
1: No, but the I The guy I don't, that I died
0: mean, was a hardcore democrat. He campaigned yeah. for jimmy carter and then yeah, after like, he died was it the brother or the cousin or it doesn't matter the, whoever was left noticed that they had a certain fan base and said well fuck it let's just play to that fan base and then if they got rid of the confederate flag it's because that got out of control but the original yeah. leonard skinner was all about working class man and not right, right-wing uh, politics
1: right. exactly right well, that's not who they were right but that doesn't mean that's not who their followers were or weren't not all right. of them are that but but you know So I'd heard one of their songs the other day and I didn't know it was them and I liked it and I found out it was them. And so I was listening to the stuff and checking it out. And it's like, you know, they have a lot of really, they have a lot of black influences by way of English rock bands, right? Like if you heard them, you would assume that they just checked out the blues and a bunch of stuff like that. But they checked out a bunch of country and then a bunch of British rock. Which was basically watered down blues music. Not watered down, but you know. Uh, that sounds mean. I don't mean it like that. Because no,
0: British bands I, loved fucking American blues singers. Right, I mean,
1: but players. I mean, but it wasn't really. It wasn't really watered down. It was. Just, it was just filtered through their experience. And right, so right. It it Translated. Reimagined. It just was a different thing. Right. It's like the telephone game. So I don't mean to say watered down like a negative thing because I really love the British version of the blues. You know, like I, I do. I don't. You know, I love both versions of the blues. You know, but so they got their blues through that way. And it's interesting when I listen to it, but I was watching a thing and somebody said, you know, they weren't a very good band in the sense like they naturally had a thing. They were a really well rehearsed band, like they rehearsed 10 hours a day every single day. Like, that's what they did. If they weren't on their way to a gig or at a gig, they're rehearsing or, pre- or preparing for a gig all the songs got written very much like what you were talking about with Guns N' Roses. They got written in real time with people working parts out and writing parts and contributing. And when you listen to the albums, you're like, yeah, this is really well rehearsed. But they, but I have a feeling, and I don't know if the same is true in comedy. That's the thing, right? I feel like if I, the songs I can really express myself over are songs I've played the most, Right, like when I when I used to be a jazz musician, right, the songs that I played the best were the ones that I'd been playing since I was a, a young kid, and when it comes to playing funk songs, it's the ones the ones that I legitimately own are the ones that I've played so many times that they're just part of my musical DNA at this point, point. and I wonder, is there a place in comedy where you can rehearse it? So that it's not, like, where's the point at which you go from rehearsing and it sounds stale to rehearsing and you, so you have absolute freedom? Do you know what I mean? Like, where is that plateau? Where is that area? Do you know, do you understand my question? I'm not.
0: I'm I do. Just, and you know, I think you know. there's a two pronged answer and I think it applies to music, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it depends on the individual or the artist. And the reason I say that is because I think you can. I hear exactly what you're saying with with uh, it being in your DNA and just having the freedom to know the song and to play it. Um, the same can apply to a joke. Like, oh, I'm going to tell this story. Yeah, I know this story. So I think there is a sweet spot. I think you can slip out of it on either way. In the beginning end, you slip out of it. We're like, oh, shit, where does this go? Okay, um, in my head, I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, what note's next? What punchline is next, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other end of it, you can do it so much that it becomes... Um, just uh, I'm going to tell this joke again or I have I've not written anything new or they want to hear this greatest hit where you can be on stage (laughs) just going through the motions in a bad way if that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah and then it loses all feeling again I think the 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 miracle is in the sweet spot of finding something that is in your DNA but that you're still able to make fresh and organic as you do it yeah
1: yeah I mean I almost think of it like Like, I've been playing music with um my friend Tony recently, like, um just like virtually and social distancing and shit, and we've been kind of just exploring music, and it feels like the same thing, it feels like I felt like when I was a kid. You know, when I played music because I love it, not because somebody was going to pay me or I had to learn a bunch of songs or I had a show to prepare for or anything like that. I played it because I just love to play and explore instruments. Like I love exploring life through melody and through rhythm and things like that. It just, it excites me to do that. And I remember doing that with him and there was a point at which I started to get into my head a little bit. Like oh this is a performance what do people think and are the neighbors listening and can people hear me and I was like oh right that's where it falls apart it falls apart in those moments it's like right like and and that's what I learned being in a band with Katie that's the thing like I I say I called up one of my friends and I on the way home from a gig and I was like man I just finished a gig an hour and a half ago he goes what do you mean I go I was hanging out after the gig the whole time. We hung out, we we chilled, we partied a little bit. We talked to people in the audience, we had food, we we sat down and relaxed and people didn't even want to go home. It was sad to end to leave the party after we were done playing. And he's like, "Holy shit, that's incredible." And it's true because we'd been in like wedding bands and cover bands and learning other people's songs for for like club gigs and stuff and the minute you're done it's like okay somebody hands you your paycheck and then they go do all the fun stuff and you just kind of like okay a couple of people talk to you and then you're like on your way out the door and my friend had gotten his thing down to like three minutes he's a keyboard player and he could be out in his car literally in less time than a pop song and there's something to be said for that you know like when I was playing with Katie, when we first started really playing, we I think that night we didn't even really make any money, really. And I was like, right. And it reminded me of the jazz musicians who wouldn't actually take gigs other than jazz gigs. And people would get mad at them and like, go, oh, you're like a jazz Nazi and stuff like that. And it's like, well, no. Like, I, I love playing all different kinds of music. So i I don't... It's not about the kind of music all the time. But I do have a certain thing that... I have to, I really like when I like the people and like the music and feel like I'm being I'm able to be creative and expressive and all of these things become really important and when I'm in that space when I play old tired lines and stuff they're filled with so much energy that it doesn't feel old and tired and over rehearsed you know but when I'm in the other place it doesn't matter if it's brand new it lacks the fire. I feel like the fire comes from my connection to the moment rather than how much I'm familiar with the material. I just feel like the more familiar I am, the more emotional, again, the more surface area I have, the more bandwidth I have to express because I understand the details of whatever bullshit pentatona line I'm playing. You know, <laughs> if that makes any sense.
0: Well, let me... um. Uh, we, we can uh, talk about my, my praise or my new uh, love for Trump next week because we're we're bumping yes. up against an hour. So let me uh, leave okay. you with a, a, not advice or suggestion, but a thought. I don't even know what to call it. Um, this goes off what you were just talking about. There was an old VH1 show called, I think it was Bands on the Run. Pretty sure it was Bands on the Run. Mm-hmm. And... What they did is it was a competition. There were four or five bands, and this is before the Internet. This is maybe at the beginning of cell phones, um, where they they were given a van, and they were told to go to a city. And it's like, all right, we got you a gig. And you play the gig, and whoever raises the most money from that gig, either by ticket sales or T-shirt sales or CD sales afterward, you win that round. So it was basically a competition. And they had to get to town and like put up flyers or contact a local radio station like, hey, we're doing this thing. And again, you have to do this all without the Internet. Um, and the two bands that made it to the finals, one was called, and, and this is sad, uh, one was called Soulcracker and the other was called Flicker Stick. Just the <laughs> worst fucking band names ever. Um, and Flickerstick was- You know one
1: of your favorite bands is named called The Police, right?
0: Yeah, but there's just, something just weirdly iconic about it. I mean, it, it's so simple, is what I think made it iconic. Is like, what should we call ourselves? Uh-huh. The police? Okay. Look at all, like Queen. My God, it's I so know. simple. Whereas opposed queen. to Soulcracker or Flickr Stick? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> the Cars. Yep. Yeah, I, you I, too. I you. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, the only one of the few really clever bands is like uh, Soundgarden. I mean, that's that actually is an evocative name. Does ooh, I mean, but it garden. sounds
1: like, but, but if you met, if that wasn't the, who they were, and you met a nice hippie chick who made yoga music, and she told you her band was named Soundgarden, you'd think it was corny.
0: True. They had to be a heavy band for that to work. That's, yeah, you'd think,
1: you'd, you'd think she was an idiot you know or you'd be like oh boy it's gonna sound like whatever you know yeah
0: <laughs> so to, to go what you were saying about uh what we talk about with 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 guns and roses and their albums um they could earn extra points when it gets down to the final two bands soulcracker and flicker Stick, they they had a chance to it was it was a point-driven game uh contest And I think a lot of them are on YouTube right now, and I recommend watching it. I I absolutely loved the series. But playing live, Flickr Stick was on point. Whatever they did, they did it live. Soulcracker was very technical. And one of the bonus things they could do is they went to a music store, and they said, all right— uh the drummer's gonna do a drum solo the bass player's gonna do a bass solo the guitar player's gonna do a guitar solo and you know whoever wins between the two bands you get more points going into the final round the final con- concert so soul cracker the guys sit down and they you know they do all their solos like here's the drum solo you know here's the guitar solo and flicker stick they can't do a fucking thing he's like dude I, i'm a drummer i don't know how to do a solo
1: and um, <laughs> right.
0: the guitar player was the same thing. He's like, I don't really do shit off the top of my head. And so they lost all the contests, but they overall won because as a unit, as a band, their songs were just better. They were unique, right. and you watch them, and you're like, wow, these people on stage work as a unit. Like you, when you were talking about Leonard Skinner, this is, that's where it came from. Or no, not Leonard Skinner. Who were you talking about? Yeah. Skinner. The Allman Brothers? I don't the remember. No, Skinner, um, you're
1: right. Yeah, it was oh, yeah, okay. Skinner. The Allman brothers played a lot too. Yeah, they had the same same idea, but right. Also, but either way, the whole point was Soulcracker.
0: Before. They were they played all the time. They were technicians. And when they got on stage, it just wasn't that interesting because they were technicians. Yeah. And and the one band put everything into like, I think this is a good song, and the other band put everything into how cool is this? Like and there's a difference. Yeah. Yeah, what
1: I what I love is the, the blend of the two, right, where you have people like you have great songs, people who play for the song, but and learn how to express themselves inside of that place. Right. Because as a bass player, if I do my job well, the band should sound better. Right. Like what I play should give make the singer sound better, make the guitar solo be more interesting. Like I should play things that support the person so much that they can do their best. And when I find a way to love being able to do that, that's when I play the best stuff, not when I'm trying to impress the three bass players in the audience.
0: Right. And, and that, that brings us point? to a, a close. I want to go back yeah. several weeks uh, when I was making in front of Marilyn Manson. <laughs> and you jokingly said, by the way, you know, you, you like that, but walking on the moon is a simple baseline and I went, Ah, oh, you got me there. But then the more I thought about it, it just sort of popped into my head, it may have been simple, but there the difference in my there there was a feel to it where you actually had to understand timing. Whereas Marilyn Manson was thump thumb 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 thum thumb thum thum thumb thum thumb thum and walking on the mood, that had space. You had to actually feel and understand where that next beat went. You know, boom boom and where's the next yeah. part? You know, like you. So right. I I will defend my uh, my police songs uh, all day against Marilyn Manson.
1: I mean, I I, I would what I would say is that in, in the Marilyn Manson song, the bass. I don't know the song you speak of, but it, it all, of functional. all of them all of them. Every it, single it sounds song, every like Marilyn bass, Manson song. Like the bass serves a function there, whereas in the police song, the bass serves a function, but also provides an integral part that right. only the bass can do and it's just it's just a different way of approaching right like you know i mean i hear what you're saying it's just, it's one of those things that like it's one of those old leftover music school things you know the, when I, I feel like I get all judgy about music sometimes. So when I hear other people do it, I'm like, hey, don't you be judgy. <laughs> you know? It goes back <laughs> to what we always talk about. You, you hate in others what you see in yourself. Exactly. Right, because there's a part of myself that feels that way sometimes. There's right? a part like, of me.
0: Don't say myself you know? like that, goddammit. That's my biggest pet <laughs> peeve is now people that use myself where they should use me or I.
1: Okay. There's a part part of of me. There's a part of I.
0: (laughs) I actually prefer that. I prefer a part of. (laughs) Uh,
1: No, that that's classic Bob Marley. You know, you know. But uh, but yeah. No. I mean. But there's definitely a part of me that that really can be really judgy about things, and then you know. But two of my really good friends are in uh, high-level pop music, and it's like. I know how hard it is to write a pop song. Like it's not easy. If it was know? if it was easy, we'd like, all be doing it. We'd all have right, it. Exactly. Like just because the songs might harm, be harmonically simple doesn't in any way, shape or form mean they're easy to write. <laughs> you know? Like they're not that easy is to write. True. You know. And so I have to learn to respect even I don't particularly – I can't name a single Marilyn Manson song other than Sweet Dreams, and that's not his song. I right? didn't even – couldn't but, even name
0: that. I don't name it. But, but, but either way, come on. We don't need to talk know. about Marilyn Manson anymore. Let's, yeah, let's let the listeners true. go. All Barrett right, if I, if uh, Antar I Goodwin is at antargoodwin.com, katiehenrymusic.com. And both I am, of those. What's that?
1: Yeah, both of those, antargoodwin.com, katiehenrymusic.com and uh katie henry music on on all the socials and antar goodwin on all the socials
0: and i am at Nathantimmel.com and if you google nathan timmel you find all things me because there ain't other nathan timmels out there all right <laughs> exactly. thanks for uh tuning in everyone we will talk yeah, at you next fun. week
1: indeed see you folks